If you take your Bibles and open them to Exodus chapter 3, and while you're taking your Bibles and turning there with me, uh, just a thought about tonight's member meeting. I hope that you all can make it, but at 5.30, for those who are working with our kids or are in the nursery ministries, um, we'll be having a meeting, a pre-meeting, so that you can know what's happening in our uh, church family. So I'll, I'll update you, talk to you uh, throughout the, uh, the topics that we'll be covering in our member meeting. That way, as you're serving our teenagers or working little theologians in the nursery, you can be fully up to speed on what we're covering as a church family. Don't want you to miss that, if at all possible. So for those of you that are in kids' ministries, 5.30, we'll actually be meeting in the room right here, kind of where our office meets. There's a conference table there, so um, I think there are a handful of you signed up, but if any of you are working with kids tonight and don't want to miss the member meeting, make sure you make it for that. That way you can be brought up to speed. We have some church discipline issues to deal with as well as some other uh, announcements to work through. So if you can make sure you're there for that, that would be great. Exodus chapter 3. This is the uh, account of the burning bush. And in this account, um, we could probably frame it this way in some ways. It's a little bit like When you meet someone for the first time and you're formulating an opinion of who they are, in some ways that's what God is doing here. He's introducing himself to Moses and and I would say all of Israel. And so in some ways this is kind of that first impression. God is establishing the foundation of how his people will relate to him. And and although we don't live in the era of Israel and, and the worship of Israel, we still worship the same God. So there are quite a few principles that transcend all people of all times and how they interact and relate with God well. So this passage to me is incredibly important. Uh, Like many passages of scripture, uh, these are so well known and so well worn for good reason that they kind of tower above any preacher's capacity to preach it well. Um, But I, I still think it's worth taking the time considering what God is instructing us in his word and here's, here's maybe if we're going to think through what God is establishing here with Moses. God is establishing the principles of fellowship with his people. Maybe you could say these foundational truths of fellowship as he begins interacting with Moses and in many ways introducing himself personally to Moses. Moses probably, like many of the Israelites, had this oral history passed down through accounts of how God interacted with Abraham, how he interacted with Jacob, and and how God led through Joseph to bring the people of Israel down to Egypt. But they don't have the text. They don't have written scripture. It's all this oral history of, of accounts told from father to son to grandson to great grandson. And so there's probably a lot of just lack of clarity and, and confidence built on oral history. But if you're listening to stories from your great, 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 great grandpa, and, and now you're so many generations removed, you can imagine that while there's a lot of confidence in the general thematic flow of that history, there's a lot of missing pieces you want to grab a hold of and know. And God begins to unfold for the people of Israel how to meet with him and to walk in fellowship with the God of Israel. So look now with me in verse 1. I'll go ahead and read all the way through the the end of chapter 3 here as we see the interaction with Moses and the Lord as he speaks from this burning bush. Verse 1, Scripture says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame 
out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called out to him of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take off your sandals, off your feet, and excuse me, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to a place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians." Moses continues this interaction in chapter 4, but we'll conclude our reading there. God initially meets with Moses in this burning bush. You'll see it, it calls him the angel of the Lord. It's clear from the flow of the text, for instance, in verse 5, that it's the Lord himself who's speaking. And so I think, I think we're well served by considering that God is not speaking through an angelic messenger, but using this bush as a, as a mouthpiece to call Moses to listen to him. In fact, even as God starts to speak to Moses, when he says, Moses, Moses, that, that's uh, an affectionate greeting. It's a, it's a greeting of familiarity and kindness. It's not a, a, you're not hearing me the first time, so I'm going to say it again like a parent might to a child who's not paying attention. 
So here the Lord meets with Moses and interacts with him. And I would suggest to you, at the least, we can observe these four principles of fellowship. And the first is that God establishes a place of fellowship. God establishes a place of fellowship. If you look in verse 1, it says Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro. So he leads his flock to the west side of the wilderness. And so if you were to picture the Red Sea on a map, there's kind of uh, two fingers that reach in. Towards Egypt, there's a, a finger of the Red Sea, and, and then there's a gulf that's on the, on the eastern side. It's probably in, in between those two fingers of the Red Sea where Moses is, and he's probably closer to the border of Egypt along that gulf there. And he goes to this mountain, it's called Mount Horeb here. Notice it's called Mount Horeb, the what? You look at the end of verse 1, it says, the mountain of God. And then you'll notice as Moses enters into this kind of area and vicinity around this bush that's on fire and yet not consumed, God says, stop, take off your sandals, this place is sacred, this is holy ground. So as you track this through, Mount Horeb is not the name by which you generally think of this mountain. But in chapter 4, you'll see Moses meets Aaron there. God says, I'm going to summon Aaron, and you're going to meet on this mountain. And again, in chapter 4, it calls it this. In, in verse 27, the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness and meet Moses. So he went up and met him on the mountain of God. And then Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, hey, I, I want to go a three-day's journey, and I want to sacrifice and worship our God. And it's probably, well, in fact, I think it's very clearly this mountain he's referring to. So you come down to chapter 18. Israel has now escaped Egypt. They're in this land, and they come to this mountain, and Moses meets his father-in-law with his wife and two sons. And again, it's called the mountain of God. Chapter 18, verse 4. Um, uh, he comes, and, and Jethro meets with him and says that you've been delivered from Pharaoh. In verse 5, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife, Moses, in the wilderness, where he was encamped on the mountain of God. Come with me to chapter 24. This is not insignificant. In fact, I think when you read Ezekiel 28, you'll see that the Garden of Eden was on a mountain. When Moses gets off the ark and God meets with him and covenants with him, they're on a mountain. It's probably not then surprising that when the, the world in arrogance tries to ascend the heavens to, to enter God's domain. They build a temple like a mountain. And here then, God is establishing a place of holiness, a place where he would meet with his people. If you're with me in chapter 24, look down in verse 12. The Lord said, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone. This is Mount Horeb, or you might know it as Mount Sinai. So Israel's encamped around this mountain. They're around Mount Sinai. And God says, come up to me on the mountain and wait for me there that I may give you the tablets of stone, the law and the commandments which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant, Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. And whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain, and the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. You see, it has a different name now. And the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain. 
in the sight of the people of Israel. And Moses entered the cloud and went up into the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Of course, we know the tragedy of Moses being up there. Israel ends up building a statue, a golden calf, and worshiping it rather than God. But here's this, here's this mountain, and God establishes this mountain as, as, maybe you could say it this way, as a temporary temple, a sacred place where he will meet with Israel and he will establish his covenant and where he will face-to-face face meet with Moses and establish relationships with his people in fellowship. This is a significant transition in world history for God. For the first time, God is establishing a place as his place with which he'll meet with these people on the basis of fellowship with a named people called Israel. In fact, I think it's very clear that as God then establishes the tabernacle, the actual tent, that his meeting place moves from this mountain with Israel into the promised land. And ultimately then, where does this temple get set up? Yes, Jerusalem, we might call it Mount Zion or Mount Moriah, which is interesting that God establishes his temple on another sacred mountain, which happens to be in Genesis 22 where Isaac was going to be offered as a sacrifice and God rescues with a substitutionary lamb, a ram really, that then is sacrificed. God moving his place. So I want you to consider theologically then what God is doing for Israel. So far they have no scriptures. They only have oral history. If someone were to say, where would you go to meet with God? They would have no answer. And for the first time in their history, God in grace comes and gives them now a place where if someone were to say, where would you go? Israel for the next 40 years would have said, God met with us on this mountain. And there he communed with his servant Moses, who God has providentially worked through and is also a Levite. Remember, his mother and father were both Levites. And you know that the priestly tribe that meets with God, that works through the temple system, are the tribes of the Levites. So Moses is particularly qualified to be a liaison between God and God's people. Now, as you come to the New Testament, there's this interesting episode, and I think it helps us frame out a little bit more clearly both the grace that Israel receives and the particular and amazing kindness of God in this age. Do you remember the woman at the well? And she comes to Jesus, and Jesus is interacting with her, and she throws out this theological place of contention. She says, do we worship God here or in Jerusalem? It's really a question of this. We believe the first five books of the Bible, that's the Samaritan scriptures, they did not accept the rest of the scripture. And up until that point, Israel worshiped at the tabernacle, but the tabernacle had not been moved to the temple in Jerusalem. And so her question is, is the sacred place here or is the sacred place Jerusalem? Because we're sincere and we worship here. Are we getting it right? Are we meeting with God here? You know what Jesus says to her? The Jews have it right and you have it wrong. But a time is coming where God will be worshipped in spirit and in truth. And his point is, is that God is moving his sacred place from Jerusalem into his people throughout the world. 
So we come to 1 Corinthians 3, and you look in verses 18 and following, and you see that, that Paul is saying the church, we are God's, what? You guys know? We are God's temple. And that God dwells among us. So you want to know where God is. He is not in a sacred place. He is among his sacred people. So that when the church gathers, God is present. And that's not merely the congregation of the church, which it is. It's also, when you come to chapter 6, a clear challenge to us all. I want you to go to 1 Corinthians 6, just to make this point abundantly clear on the implications for you and me. Some of you have grown up in very strict churches. You might even use the word legalistic. And I think one of the, the damaging places of contention is that legalism removes the personhood from God and turns him into some mechanical, demanding judge of holiness. When you look in 1 Corinthians 6, it's not as though the standard is lowered, but the standard is personal. So he's talking about sexual immorality. The Corinthian city itself and church struggled with sexual immorality. And so you come into this text and he's arguing theologically against prostitution. Now you wouldn't think that that would take very much arguing. Like, like, do you really have to convince the church to stop sleeping with prostitutes? Like, what type of church is this? But at the same time, we better be able to theologically ground our commitments to holiness in the work and the grace and the person of Christ, not merely in regula regulated rules. So, so you come in verse 14. God raised the Lord and will raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? So I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never, he says. I want you to skip down now to verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexual immorality a person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is what? It's a temple of the Holy Spirit. It's, a, it's a, a spirit characterized by what? Holiness. So therefore, you should be characterized by what? Holiness. And he is within you. And you are not your own. You have been bought with a price so here God in the Old Testament establishes a sacred place on this mountain where God's people know that they can meet with the holy God. And we have become so accustomed to the idea that God dwells in us that perhaps we've lost sight of the word sacred and the idea of a sacred place. God's sacred place is his people corporately and personally. It is meant to be set apart to God and set apart from all that defiles it. And I trust that prostitution is not problematic in our church. But I am sure that we can often act as though holiness is prudish 
or legalistic or unloving. And in fact, it's just the opposite. Holiness is an expression of love and loyalty to the one who dwells in you, who's characterized as holy. Now come back to Exodus chapter 3, and you'll see that God makes that point. So not only does God establish a sacred place on this mountain for Israel, and, and, and it's a place of grace and kindness, but you'll notice that, as has already been teased out, it's a holy place. It's not merely the place where they meet God. It's where God establishes a holy fellowship. Not just a place of fellowship, but it's a holy fellowship. Look with me in verse 5. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet and place, for the place, excuse me, on which you're standing is holy ground. Now, I want you to consider for a moment what's going on. God has established this mountain is going to be where he communes with his people for the next era of Israel's history. And Moses sees this burning bush, and probably like any of us, I mean, let's face it, if you see a, a flame on a mountain and it's just not dying, you might be too lazy to climb the mountain, but you'll still wonder. You'll still want to know what's going on, especially if, as, as is probably the case, if Moses is grazing a huge herd in that area and God has this bush not being consumed, he might have been watching it for days. So he goes to bed and he's like, well, what is that light on that mountain? And the day he can still see smoke coming up from it. That night it's still burning. The next day it's still burning. The next day it's still burning. The next day it's still burning. Finally, Moses goes, I am going to go check this thing out. Like, what is going on? Now, he's in the middle of the desert. He's probably relatively isolated. Maybe there's some other herdsmen with him. As he takes this trek of curiosity, he starts getting near the bush, and God says, stop. You notice what God didn't say? Come near. Don't worry about it, that you're not holy. God says two things to him. Take your shoes off and stop. Don't come near. And so Moses does that. In fact, he's so fearful, he hides his face. If you look again at the text, Moses stops short. And Moses hides his face from God. And as he does this, that's verse 6, at the end of verse 6, by the way, he hides his face. And as Moses does this, he's reminded that God is approachable to some extent, but no one comes into the presence of a holy God without some measures made for our creatureliness or our sinfulness. So as you define holiness throughout Scripture, there's, there's two anthems that, 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 that unite together in God's holiness. One is that God is not like us. God is not a creature. He dwells in unapproachable light, Timothy tells us, so, so that we have God who is apart from us. He's not like us. It's not as though when I come near you, you, you have any right to be like, whoa, 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 whoa. This is a holy turf, bro. Back up. I mean, you could say that if you want. It's just not true. Right? I mean, some of, some of you ladies, you keep your house very clean and no shoes are allowed in that house. It's still not holy. You don't have, I mean, this is God's character. That merely by manifesting his presence to Moses, he sanctifies and makes sacred the dirt so that even for Moses to walk with sandals that are carrying all the garbage of the, of the world around it, God says, no, 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 no. You are not allowed to come near me with those dirty sandals. 
In fact, stop right there. No closer because you are not like me. You are not holy. And in fact, as you go through Israel's history, again, I think God is giving us an initiating understanding of who he is with Israel and who he is with us. God is unapproachable if he makes no measures to grant us holiness. So Moses is stopped, and God speaks to him from a distance from the bush. He interacts with Moses very graciously, and yet Moses is not able to come near. If you were to fast forward and, and look at the prescriptions, in fact, even as he does, come with me to chapter 19, and you'll see, you'll see that this is the expectation, that God demands holiness. And some of this is um, ritual in the sense that it's not truly a provision of holiness, but it's an expression of faith by which God permits them, maybe I could say um, a standing of holiness, even though the people themselves are not yet holy because they have not yet expressed faith. As you come to chapter 19, the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear when I speak and, you will always, and they will always believe you. Then Moses reported to the people the words of the Lord. So you come down to verse 10. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. And on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be what? You guys catch this? What's going to happen if you touch the mountain? You'll die. In fact, not only will you die, that's the death penalty given for touching the mountain. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. So think about this for a second. You go and you start climbing this mountain because you want to join Moses and meet with God up there. The whole nation of Israel is to kill you. And yet, because you've touched the mountain, they can't touch you, but they still have to exercise the death penalty. So they can shoot you with arrows or throw spears at you or you know, throw a stone, but they cannot grab hold of you to arrest you. They just have to kill you from a distance. You think God is preaching to his people, I am holy. You don't trespass against my holiness. You don't sin against my holiness. You don't bring wickedness into my holiness. In fact, if you go on and read this, so whether it's a beast or a man, he shall not live. So you see just a, a, a relatively speaking, innocent bunny rabbit hop on the mountain. What are you to do to it? Kill it from a distance, right? Why? Because God is holy. That is, he is apart from us, and he remains distinct from all that is creaturely as well as all that is sinful. It's not merely that God is, is innocent of any guilt and cannot be tainted by guilt. That is true. It is also that he is distinctly not a creature. As you continue reading, he has more demands. Verse 14, so Moses went up the mountain, the people con and then he consecrated the people. And they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day and do not go near a woman. They were not to have any physical relationships. No sexual activity was to be happening. They were to remain solely devoted to the Lord. And for, for whatever reason, the Lord has prescribed rules 
that regulate how people are to approach him, and one of them is just sexual innocence. And he's not saying there's the, he's not saying that sexuality is sinful. He's just prescribing if you are going to come near me, you must be set apart unto me. So on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, a very loud trumpet blast that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they took their stand in front of the mountain. And Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended in what? In fire. It's interesting that God uses holiness, which is both, or excuse me, uses fire to, to describe his holiness, which both sheds light and it consumes and burns. And so the Bible calls God a consuming fire. And speaks both to his judgment and his holiness. God is not to be approached casually or cavalierly. In our culture, I think we, we, we have so dethroned anything that is exalted or glorious or to be lifted up. I mean, we talk about the president as though he is, he is to be disrespected and we use first names and, and we... We do not speak with honor about those who are in positions of authority over us. I mean, I, I grew up in a home where I have never once heard my dad call my mom the old lady. He respected my mom way too much to ever use that phrase. But we live in a culture that dethrones anything that is to be respected. So it should be no surprise that we have, we have a culture that wants to approach God, not as he is, holy, but as we want him to be, accessible. So we use phrases like daddy, which finds no resonance with scripture. And I would suggest to you, is a defamation of our God who dwells in a high and holy place according to Isaiah 57. And we are to be treating our God with the respect he deserves means that even as we enter into his presence with prayer, that we should be sobered by our lack of merit to do so. For instance, in Hebrews 4, if you have your Bibles and you enjoy seeing the text, I encourage you to turn there. We're talking about prayer, and God calls for us to know that we should approach near to him. So if you were just to take a, a scripture concordance and look for the word near in the book of Hebrews, he is speaking about our fellowship with God through prayer is actually how we draw near. And Moses was held off from the burning bush. He could not come near. And so we come to Hebrews chapter 4, and we don't have to have Moses in his priestly function. We don't have to have a Levitical priest who enters into God's presence for us. Because we come to chapter 4, verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest. Who's that? It's Jesus Christ. And he's passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast, hold strongly to our confession of faith. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet he is without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Okay, so here's the picture. Let us do what? We draw near to the throne of grace. 
Moses couldn't come near, not to the throne, but to a bush because God was using it to speak to him. Because God is holy, he dwells apart from his creation. He is not to be approached with casualness, with insincerity, with faithlessness, with sin on our hands or in our hearts. He is not to be approached as though he's just your buddy. He is God. And only those who have the high priestly grace of Christ have access And our confidence is not in our merits, our worthiness, our goodness. Our confidence is in our high priest. So if someone were to say to you, how can you so freely enter into God's presence? The answer is, not because of me. But because of a perfect sacrifice that allows my sin and my creatureliness and my unworthiness to be obscured behind the worthy and the sinless and the holiness of my priest, Jesus Christ, who was both the priest and the sacrifice offered by that priest. That's how I go. Well, why are you so confident? Because I'm confident in him, not my merits. I'm not good. And if God were to look at me without Christ, I would be consumed to enter into his presence with such carelessness. So when we say something like this, in Jesus' name, we're identifying the basis by which we stand in God's presence in prayer. So here's the the incredible gift of prayer. We don't have to go to a mountain. Sinai is just a hill of dirt somewhere. We don't even know where. And that's because God's presence is no longer meeting with his people there. But right now, you could turn in faith to Jesus Christ, ask him to cleanse you of your sin, and be spiritually in God's presence and never have to leave your chair. On the basis of the high priestly work of Christ, whereby he died to cleanse sinners. The doors of heaven have been opened to all who have Christ. But only to those who have Christ. Because just like at the burning bush, if you try to enter heaven's presence without the grace of Christ, God will say, stop. This is holy ground. You don't belong. What grace God gives to Israel that through the ministry On this mountain, they can hear the voice of God. They can know God's will because he reveals himself in these commands that he gives to Israel. And through Moses' ministry, they know the will of God for them. This is the first time God inscripturates truth is through the hand and the ministry of Moses. This is grace for them. And John says, but we've received a better grace so that while they have grace, we have grace and now we have a better grace in Jesus Christ whereby we can approach the very presence of God. God continues to reveal himself. If you take your Bibles and turn back with me to Exodus chapter 3, let me suggest to you that not only does God establish a place for his people to meet with him, not only does he establish holiness as the basis by which they must meet with him, God establishes his faithfulness. 
as the hope by which they meet with him. So when you look at this text, God introduces himself, and, and, and we're going to have to consider this for a little bit before we actually understand the text well, I think. Verse 6, and he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God, and rightly so. As you continue down, I want you to recognize that God is going to keep his promises. Verse 8, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And even as we go further, you recognize that God is, is helping Moses understand that he is planning on keeping his covenant. He's planning on keeping his promises. And then in verse 12, he tells Moses, he goes, I will be with you. So, so here's, here's the thought. I want, I want you to consider this. When God says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, what exactly does God mean? Because it could be something like this. Our God is God of this whole earth. And this is Psalms really carefully says in Psalm 24 that the Lord has made this earth and all that fills it, and therefore he is the God of this whole world. I mean, no one in this world can look up to heaven and be like, you're not my God. He's God over all this world and all this creation. But if that's, if that's what God is saying to Moses, he said nothing helpful. Right? It's like the sun saying, yeah, I'm the sun shining on all y'all. Like it's, it's, not spe- it's not specific. It's not particular. It's not really a way of identifying anything special about God. What then is God intending for Moses to hear in these words, I am the God of your father? And then he lists the three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which you'll see as, you, as we read several passages already, it keeps getting repeated. Like, I am this God. Well, here's precisely the point. Jesus, I think, gives us a lot of clarity, so we know we're on good ground. And Jesus repeatedly uses this text in various ways, but he specifically uses it as proof of the resurrection. And he asks the, the spiritual leaders of the day who are struggling with the theology of the, res, uh, the resurrection, he says to this, don't you know that there is a res- resurrection? Because the Bible has said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's, that's all he says. And Jesus feels like that's, that is a full argument, and he won the day, and he moves on. So here's what, here's what our Lord is saying. There is both the idea that God is God in the sense of he is the, he is the creator and the sustainer and the governor, the king of this universe. But there is a second sense in which God is God over particular people, in which he relates to them as God, and they relate to him as he is, God. And so it speaks of the saving relationship is how we might describe it in this age, but Moses would have thought of it as a covenantal relationship. That is, this is the God who met with Abraham and sent him to the land of promise, and then covenanted with him in Genesis 15, and met with Abraham, and promised him that he will bless him, and give his offspring this land, and multiply them, and be a blessing through them to all the nations. That covenantal relationship is where Abraham joins under God, becomes his servant, and God his God. And then you see the same work with Isaac and with Jacob. Do you remember when Jacob wrestles with God and finally gets this place of submission and belief and trust in God and God secures for, the, for, for, 
him the blessings? It is clear when you look at the patriarchs that they each believed and trusted in the promises of God. In fact, it's contrasted with Esau, whose disbelief is revealed in this. He gave away his blessing for how much? A meal, right? A bowl of soup. You know you don't value something when you exchange it for a happy meal. It's not worth a whole lot. Hebrews says that he tried to get it back and searched for it with tears, but was not granted repentance. He was never given that blessing back. He sold it away in a faithless move that showed how little he cared about God's blessing because he didn't trust the promises of God. And Esau is typified then as a man of of unsavory character. He marries pagan women. He becomes hard and unrepentant towards God, a man without faith. So continuing back then, for God to say that he is, now the ESV translates it present tense. It's really not the best way to understand Hebrew. It's just this idea of this this is a true state of being. God is their God. So what then does this mean in relation to covenant? Well, if I were to, if I were to like, think of it in a different covenantal sense, for instance, let's imagine that you are at a Christmas party and you, you meet a coworker's spouse. And they were to say something like this, I'm his wife. You wouldn't wonder if that person was alive. In order for them to have a spouse, it inherently means that that person is still alive because marriage, we know, is a covenant that says until death parts us. When death happens, you are no longer married. We might use the word widow or widower, but the reality is that marriage is a covenant that really clearly stipulates it goes until death, and then the covenant is dissolved in death. So here, God has told Moses, these are people with whom my covenant relationship is ongoing. Which means what to Moses? They are, they're alive. They're still adherence to a covenant relationship with God that has never been dissolved through death. Jesus uses this. He just cites it. Like, he doesn't, he doesn't go through the whole covenantal thing. They all knew this. Like, to be in covenant with God is to be still alive so that the covenant is still viable and in place and strong. So here God is telling Moses, I am still maintaining fellowship with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, and even your own father, Moses. And we don't know if his father is alive, but if Moses is 80, his dad is old. So it could be that Moses' dad has physically passed away, but is Moses' dad still alive and in covenant relationship with God? Yes. I think this has massive bearing on our theology. And here's here's what I think Scripture is teaching us in this text, and Moses is is probably getting a full dose of it, and we kind of miss it because we don't understand covenant strongly. But God is telling us that to to enter into relationship with him, is to have eternal life. That is, for God to be your God means you will never taste eternal death, ever. 
In fact, we would say the possession of every believer today is eternal life. Eternal life is not something you get when you die. It is something you have when you believe. So that right now, your life is no less secure than it will be when you're in heaven. You have eternal life. So Jesus would say it something like this in John 10, 28. I give unto them eternal life, and no one is able to pluck them from my hand. Now notice, I, I give, not I will give, in the sense of like it'll be some future possession. They have it, they can never be removed. Or if you were to jump into Romans 8, nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. And he lists in there what? Death. Death cannot separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing. Principalities, powers, things come, things future, things to come. Nor height, nor depth, not even death itself, can separate us from the love of Christ. Why? Because we are in covenant relationship with God. We are saved and we currently own eternal life. If he is your God. Again, this is a particular promise to Israel. That is, he is looking at Israel and saying, I will be their God. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he opens up this promise to all Israel. And we move forward into this age. And again, we're told this, for instance, in Romans, that all who call in the name of the Lord will be what? So it's a, it's a wide open invitation. But if the invitation remains unaccepted, eternal life is not yet yours. Do not mistake the open invitation for a universalism. Only those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And when you call on him, you are saved. I want to just take you down to Exodus 23, and you see this covenantal language being anchored to Israel now. And again, I think God is introducing himself in this burning bush, and he's showing that he's a God who keeps his promises, and a God whose promises are so strong that death itself is no threat to his promise. So you look in Exodus 20, and I'm just going to skim through verses 20 through 33. I'm going to highlight all God's activity. But there's, there's an interplay here. It's a, a, again, our, our closest relationship in terms of covenants is marriage. We have covenant relationship there where you stand in front of the pastor and usually have vows, right? You know, I promise to care for her and love her in sickness and health and, you know, all this stuff. And then you look at her and, and she's got to say the same thing to him, right? Like there's this, you, you have the same kind of picture going on in Exodus 23. Look at verse 20. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I've prepared. So God promises not only to be with Moses, but now he promises Moses that he's going to send an angel who is going to go with Israel. Verse 22, I will be an enemy to your enemies. Verse 23, my angel who goes before you and brings you into the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and I will blot them out. So here we have God's promised presence as they enter into this place of military battle and danger. I will be with you, and I will blot them out. Look down at verse 25. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water. 
I will take away sickness from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the numbers of your days. You're going to live long lives. Verse 27, I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the peoples against whom you shall come. I will make your enemies turn their backs on you. That is, they will flee from you. Verse 28, I will send hornets before you to drive out these Hivites and the Canaanites and the Hittites. Verse 29, I will drive them out before you. Excuse me, I will not drive them out before you in one year, lest the land become desolate. Verse 30, little by little, I will drive them out. So here God is saying, I will be with you, I will be present, I will bless your bread and your water. Your wives won't miscarry. Your enemies will run from you because I am doing what? I am present with you to bless you. You could go through this text and, and read their um, obligations, verse 21. Uh, pay careful attention, obey, do not rebel. Carefully obey in verse 22, all that I say. Um, do not uh, follow their gods or serve their gods. Verse 25, serve the Lord your God alone. Verse 32, make no covenant with them or with their gods. So God gives stipulations to them in this covenant relationship that he's opening up for Israel. But when he starts at the burning bush, he doesn't start by telling them, hey, there's a covenant you can enter. He tells them that he is still faithful to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is still in fellowship with them. He is still keeping his promises. He is still sustaining them and walking with them. So they are still alive. And then when he comes later and he says, Israel, we can enter into this covenant relationship and I will be your God and I will be with you and I will protect you and I will bless you and I will give you bread and I will give you water and I will protect your wives and I will give you life. He is telling them how he did this and still is sustaining his promises to these men as an introduction so that they can understand the covenantal relationship and what it looks like and how faithful he is. And we come to the New Testament era, and it's no longer just promises about land. Now those promises have been paid for. It's not as though God is saying, I will do this and give you eternal life, and he doesn't tell us how or why, but he actually gives concrete proof that he's already secured for us. The entire purchase price of all of the promises and all of the grace so that when we look at God and he tells us, come unto me and you will live, we don't wonder how. We know exactly what this cost and it has been paid in full by our Savior, Jesus Christ. But our God hasn't changed. He enters into relationship with his people and he dwells with them. And he is good to them. And all those who have Christ have the eternal fellowship of God through the Spirit. Do you? Do you trust in Jesus? Do you have God? Is he with you? As we consider, and I would say kind of a final consideration as you come back to Exodus chapter 3. And again, I'm just, like, we're on the front porch as God introduces himself to Israel. And we're just kind of standing on the doormat and God is letting us know a little bit about who he is. God relates to his people personally. I think one of the dangers that we see in our culture is kind of a mechanical view of God. 
That is, God, God likes to do good to his people. God wants me happy. And God just kind of blandly wants us for all people. And we think we deserve good. If you were just to do a man-on-the-street interview and, and, and ask them, hey, do you think God is good? They would say, yeah, he's good. Well, what does God want for you? He wants good things for me. Okay, so what's hard for you theologically about what you just said? Like, well, sometimes bad things happen to good people. You know, it's hard for me to know how good God really is because my mother-in-law just got diagnosed with cancer. And despite what most people say, I like my mother-in-law. Right, like that, that's his struggle because he is, he is convinced of, of this truth. God is good to me. So well, what is the basis of God's goodness to you? And he's like, ah, God is good. Like this is the theology that is winning the world to a, I would say, to a Christless eternity without God. We come to this chapter here. In verse 3, God particularly acts and responds to his people. Verse 7, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry. I know their sufferings. Now, God is acting in mercy. We looked at this in chapter 2. It's, it's, it's God reminding Moses now of what was happening in the heavenly places as Israel cried. Right in chapter 2, we see that God hears and God sees, and God has moved and knows his people and remembers his covenant. But now he's telling Moses, this is who I am. I'm a God who hears the heartbreak and the sorrows and the crushing defeat that Egypt is bringing on my people. I hear this, and I'm not unmoved. I know it. And I've come, verse 8, down to deliver them. That's such a cool thought. I mean, it's not like God isn't omnipresent. The point is, is God is entering into the world of his people to lead them out of Egypt personally. And he preaches to them his presence with that pillar of fire during night and cloud by day. He says, I am present when he does those things. Verse 8, I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and bring them out of the land of, to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites. And he continues on. I want you to look at verse 9, first two words there. And what? And now. How long has Moses been on this earth at this point? 80 years. And in those 80 years, God has cultivated him an education from Egypt. Stephen says he's a man powerful in speech at this point. God has humbled him. He's a shepherd, which is totally toxic to any Egyptian. So he's already an, an outcast from Egypt. He's put in his lot with God's people. God has burdened him so that when he rescued that Israelite from Egypt, he did it because he thought God was going to bring deliverance through him. So God has already brought Moses to a place where he wants and is burdened for Israel's freedom, and he believes God might use him. Eighty years God's been preparing him. God has been cultivating a man who's qualified, even in his genealogy as a Levite, to broker a relationship between God and his people in this new covenant that God is going to establish on Sinai. God has done all of this for 80 years. And finally, in the burning bush, God says, and now I'm going to act. God knows, Jesus says in Matthew 6, what we're going to ask and what we have need of before we even ask him. He uses that, that is Jesus Christ, uses that to remind us that God is personally engaged with his people. Like an attentive father, he is 
caring for us. So that when we come to him, we say, God, please help. We're not informing him. We're not bringing up new information whereby God's like, oh, you know, I'm going to adjust my plans here. God is personally engaged with the needs of his people. So that when Israel brings themselves, when, when Israel is brought to their knees, when they're finally repentant and sorrowful and pleading for mercy, and God acts, he's already had a prelude quietly singing in the background for 80 years so that the crescendo of victory is announced to the whole world that he is the God who saves his people. Our God is amazing. And he relates to his people personally. Man, this should invigorate our prayer life. God is not merely someone who needs to be informed. He's not needing to be informed at all. But he's delighted in the prayers and the communication of his people. There have been a few moments as a parent, and probably you share these if you've been a parent for any amount of time, where you want to do good to your child, but you want them to ask. Right, like, you, you, you squirreled away a piece of dessert that they wanted. They weren't there for dinner, but you saved it. And you just want them to be like, hey, Dad, can I have some? So that you can give it to them. And you want your child to respond to you by asking for what they have needs of. You want your child to interact with you on the basis of, of your personal fellowship with them, whereby you show yourself to be a good parent. And they show themselves to be a child who expects and wants to be cared for by you. How much more our Father in heaven being delighted in the prayers of his people because they know he personally cares and answers prayers. He is preaching to Moses. I am going to build a sacred place where you can meet with me it is going to be a holy fellowship. It's going to be a fellowship anchored to my promises and my character as a covenant-keeping God. And I will be with you personally to relate to you, to respond to your needs, to be a God of mercy and grace, not just holiness, so that my holiness is merciful and my mercy is holy. And I will respond to your needs and I will rescue you from the lands you're going. I will go with you into battle against these armies you could never defeat. They will run from you, but I am good. I will not let that land get emptied because it will ruin the land. I will slowly push them out in front of you because I care for you and I care for the land itself because that's who I am as God. He declares all of this to Moses. And Moses fantastically says, I'm too afraid to go. Moses tells us that's exactly who we are. Has God ever called you to something really hard? Then our thought isn't, man, God can do whatever God wants. I'm going to follow God wherever he calls me. We look at ourselves and we, we evaluate our skills, our abilities, our finances, our family. And we're like, yeah, not me. I wonder when Moses writes this, if he's feeling a little bit of embarrassment. God declares, here's who I am. And Moses says, yeah, but I'm a, I'm a loser. You need someone else, God. Perhaps you feel a little bit like that. The solution is not to strengthen your confidence in yourself. 
the solution is not to think, yeah, I'm good enough. The solution isn't, well, try harder. The solution is to trust in our incredible God, a God of mercy, a God of power, a God who personally relates to his people, a God whose holiness is not compromised by his fellowship with us. Rather, he proves himself both merciful and holy by working through the sacrifice of Christ to declare us holy. Our God is good. And if he has called you to be a parent, if he's called you to be a coworker to losers, people who frustrate you and are hard for you, if he's called you to hard tasks in life of living financially well in poverty, if God has called you to talk to your neighbor about Jesus Christ and their neighbor terrifies you, if God has called you to these things, the solution is not to look in the mirror. The solution is to look in Scripture and see who our God is and trust him and obey. So let me just ask you all, do you trust in this God? Do you trust in this God? Do you trust that fellowship with him in holiness is better than not being holy? Do you trust him that he's going to keep his promises? Do you trust him that he cares and personally relates to you? Do you trust him? Because this is who our God is. He dwells with his people in holiness to care for them in covenant salvation and care for them personally. This is who our God is. This is your God. Do you trust him? Do you know him? Have you turned from following your own way to follow God no matter what? Our hope is that that's who you are. Our hope is that you and I will be more confident in God and less self-assured because that's who our God asks us to be, trusting in him and walking by his grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. I ask that you would strengthen your people here at Crossway to face our trials, our inadequacies, our injuries, our physical frailties, not with self-confidence, not with a blind hope that because things have always worked out in the past, it will once again fall out to good order, but that we will totally commit ourselves to walking by faith, that we will trust in your hand that directs us into both green pastures and into the presence of our enemies. And Lord, if you take us through the valley of death's shadow, we will be confident because there you are still with us. Father, we trust in you, but our trust is weak. It is often cracked and breaking to the point where we feel like we have no faith. For those that are struggling in those places where their faith seems weak and almost gone, Father, would you remind them that you are faithful? Not even death itself can cause you to lose hold on those who love you. Lord, we trust you. I also ask for those who in this room might not be trusting in you, those who are still holding on to living lives of autonomy outside of obedience to you and outside of faith in you. Father, would you teach them this morning through your word that you are worth trusting because you keep promises and you are present with your people to do them good even if it does not feel good. Lord, would you call them to salvation by the ministry of your spirit Bring them to trust in Jesus Christ, to turn from lives of selfishness to living for their Savior. Lord, would you give them eternal life, we pray. 
We ask for our church, Lord, that you would strengthen our boldness and our communication of who you are. Your name is worthy to be praised. Lord, often we keep quiet because we are embarrassed. We are unsure of how to speak. We do not want to bring mistakes into a conversation, so we, we remain silent. Lord, would you teach us that we might speak the words that we should speak to make clear the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who do not know him. Lord, save people, we ask, through the testimony of your people as they declare that you're a God worth praising. So Lord, help us to praise you among the people of this city that they might know our God is worth worshiping and worth trusting because you are. Lord, I ask that you would continue to work in us and among us so that you might be pleased with people who look more and more like Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.